We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey guys, before we get to this week's guest, exciting news. The show is going to start airing on Brick TV and on YouTube on January 16th. So look out for that Torre show on TV. We're almost up to 1 million downloads lifetime. So thank you for all the support. Now we're on DCP Entertainment. So it's a new era in Torre show history. Thank you so much for rocking with us. We're going to turn up the heat this month. Watch. This week's guest, Jay Smooth, is one of my favorite public intellectuals. He's a lifelong New Yorker, a super hip-hop head. He had a radio show on WBAI called The Underground Railroad. He's got a madly popular video blog series where he puts out really interesting ideas around race. He attacked hip-hop culture's love of the phrase no homo, which is so homophobic, and had a massively viral vlog called How to Tell Somebody They Sound Racist, which is a brilliant video essay. you got to watch that. Google that. Jay Smooth is great at using media in strategic ways to spread valuable ideas about race. So I had to talk to him. It's my man Jay Smooth on Torre Show. As long as I've known you, I've felt like here is a cool public intellectual, right? Spreading interesting ideas into the public. How did you become an intellectual? Because, you know, just it's not like, well, he's tall, so he's going to be a basketball <laughs> player. Um, how did you, like, what is your journey to becoming an intellectual, do you think? Well, I don't necessarily claim that label for myself, but I think I had... I appreciate the humility. <laughs> but, I mean, I think I had it inculcated in me from my parents and my family early on to be intellectually curious as well as creatively curious. You know, both of my parents had some artistic background and were also very politically aware and very literate. Books were always a constant. You know, it was held up for me as something you should want to pursue. Um, so I had that as a model for me early on. That you should be a person who's dealing with the life of the mind. You should be reading. This is what your parents are telling you. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think I was the sort of 
introvert, natural nerd personality that I, I latched on to that sort of thing immediately. Anything that I could dig my mental teeth into and study, so any of those old school role-playing games, all these esoteric Commodore 64 games I could learn all the complicated rules for, as well as once I got a little older, digging into something like the history of COINTELPRO, all of this history that I could go to Liberation Bookstore on Lenox Avenue and dig up these books that nobody knows about and dig into it. Like that was the challenge I always loved, which then extended naturally into hip hop in terms of just learning where all the samples come from as well as exploring all the ideas. So I think there was a natural path from those other forms of intellectual and creative curiosity into my relationship with hip-hop, and that's where it really became a bedrock. Can you talk about some of the books that were like landmarks for you that really opened you up into becoming the thinker you are? I mean, there was a diverse array of influences. Mad Magazine was a big influence for me in terms of this satirical, sharp take on the world where you're Mm -hmm. trying to find humor and things that are going on, I think, from a really young age. Um, Autobiography of Malcolm X was a big book very early on. Yes, yes. My mom happened to be acquainted with Betty Shabazz when I was growing up. Wow. So I had that personal connection to knowing this is someone of great importance and reading the story of Malcolm constantly evolving as a thinker himself, Mm -hmm. Um, this constant questioning and introspection about his own worldview and what he represented was something I took a lot of inspiration from. And Lord of the Rings was a big, big thing for me growing up, but I would read voraciously. I would be in high school cutting class to go read the other book I wanted to read. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the autobiography of Malcolm X is so important to so many people. We're about the same age. So mm-hmm. many guys, either between high school and college age, read that and were transformed. I know it. I mean, I can remember sitting there in the library reading it and being like, "This book is taking me to another place as a person." Um, did it have that impact for you? I mean, I don't know if it took me to another place as a person, but it. As someone who was growing up with a certain amount of dysfunction and trauma in the home, you know, I've I've spoken in a couple of places recently about how my dad, beautiful person, incredible artist and poet, also had a lot of demons he was struggling with in terms of addiction and mental illness. So that had an effect on me where I had ways of relating to myself modeled for me that weren't that healthy and felt like I had to keep pushing and persevering to unlearn and get past that. So I think being able to see the successive stages of transformation that Malcolm went through, I think was an inspiration that guided me through those teenage years and helped me push past to become who I am now. What are, it helped me understand, what are you saying? That, that you were taught something that you wanted to unlearn? What do you mean? I mean, my dad, because of the demons he was struggling with, he had a sort of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde relationship with life where he would go out in the world was a beloved member of communities and respected. But when he came home and started drinking and got into his depression, I was able to witness that as what he saw as his real self. And the person he was out in the world is sort of a con that he's getting away with. This sort of a really profound form of imposter syndrome where, you know, Gil Scott Heron said, uh, home is where the hatred is mm-hmm. in his amazing song about addiction. And that was the way of relating to yourself that I learned that whatever esteem and place you find out there in the world, 
when you come back home inside yourself, you know that that's just a trick you're getting away with and you don't really deserve it. So I had to go through a process of getting away from that and learning that this, the place that I've carved out for myself in the world, that, that, that actually is who I am and that's what I deserve. Wait, so wait, uh, how, does this, how did it map onto you? Like what you say, you're learning, uh, seeing him going through what he's going through. How does that map onto you as a young man? It's just the model that I have. I can know in the back of my mind that this is abnormal, but it's just the energy that I'm absorbing every day while I'm there, and it's the model I have for me. And bit by bit, just from osmosis like that, I internalize that, and it becomes a part of how I relate to myself, too. It plays out into me. Uh being isolated and afraid to connect with people as I'm growing up in my teenage years, um, on top of the natural introversion I already had. There's just, there's a whole bunch of layers of uh, being in the midst of this toxicity, you absorb it and it becomes a part of you in ways I don't think you realize until you get away from it and start to unlearn it. So do you, uh, do you drink? Do you not drink as a rule? I didn't drink for a long time, probably until my 30s. Um, you know, I think the first 10 years of me being away from my dad was defined by, I don't want to end up like him. I'm going to do the opposite of whatever he was doing. I'm going to prove to the gods and the universe that I don't have to be on the path that he was on. And a part of that was definitely not even attempting taking a drink except on certain occasions. I gradually have started drinking more socially and seeing what boundaries I could set for myself outside of that. But it definitely, there's been a long, slow journey of figuring out how I separate myself out and be healthy. It's crazy how many black men of our generation are performing masculinity to be opposite their father or to reject their father's example. And it's a cycle. I mean, my father, who's doing very well now, I should say, to give context, he's in recovery and he's present in my life. And, and, and conquering his demons it's day by day. It's come full circle in a beautiful way. And I feel Good. that's one of the things I'm proudest of is, you know, he was a poet who worked with Guy Kane from the original Last Poets and uh, had just had a great voice that he was never able to fully use because of his demons. And I feel like I've been able to... Uh, inherit that voice and put it out there in a way that he never got to. So I'm really glad that it's come around to where he's healthy and he can witness that and share it. But to get to your point about each of us trying to rebel and be the opposite of what was handed on to us, my father was abandoned by his dad at a very young age, and I think that was critical to uh, the demons that he was working with and just the mental roadblocks that he struggled to get past, and I think that's when he had me as his son, I think he thought to himself, I'm going to prove that I don't have to be what my dad was. But those demons that have been passed on to him kept him from actually breaking that cycle. So that's something that we each pass on. You know, that was a powerful thing when people talked about Jay-Z and one of the Jenner kids having the same amount of money. You see that inherited wealth versus mm -hmm. having to beat the odds that have been passed on to you and start from scratch for a black man. See, where I thought you were going with that was Jay-Z is another example of, like, black man who had an oppositional relationship with his dad. You could right? go there, too. Right. Right. At, at it's least all, it's all the, of a piece. Right. I mean, if you, if you sort of plotted hip-hop on a page... Mentions of fathers are almost always negative, rejecting, angry, right? The, the mother mentions are always, she's saintly, she did all this stuff, she took care of us, but, like, we're a generation of men who had to figure it out without the older men helping us. 
And I feel like it's always important to uh, look at the systemic part of that and not just yes, put the blame on your immediate family, which is it's hard to step outside of the immediate and see that. My first job was working at a group home upstate, uh, working with so-called emotionally disturbed kids, which really meant they had gone through trauma in the home, they had been in a dysfunctional household, and working day to day, helping them deal with all that trauma, it was very easy to get caught up in blaming the parents, because it was clear on a surface level they dealt with bad parenting. And it wasn't until I had left and had taken harder looks at how politics work, how socioeconomics work. It wasn't until years later I could look back and say, well, okay, it's easy to blame the parents, but what about the system that is creating this cycle? And what is, what is it about this system that makes the stakes so much higher? Because there's mediocre parents in every walk of life. Almost everyone is going to be a parent. Most people are mediocre. There's a lot of mediocre to bad parents out there, but the stakes are so much higher for the average black parents, yes. if you're mediocre to bad, where there's a safety net for a lot of other people. When you talk about the system, and you maybe think about you know, the war on drugs, mm -hmm. over-policing our communities, and then Bill Clinton changing the law such that if you have a felony, mm -hmm. you cannot live in public housing. So now that's hundreds of thousands of black men who can no longer live with their families and want to be productive, want, love their children, uh, love their, you know, their, their baby mother or wife, what have you, but cannot, that is just breaking us apart right there. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many ways that this cycle is so deeply entrenched that seem to be invisible to uh, people who have these abstract notions of what is just and fair in terms of solutions going forward. That's one of my biggest frustrations with so much of our discussion, even the discussion right now about should we boycott certain media figures because they have racist content on their shows. There are a lot of people discussing that as this abstract thing. Well, that's unfair to other media people if you threaten the advertising dollars. That's cool. But the threat that this racist programming gives to us is not an abstraction. This is an actual life or death thing for us. I feel like there's, I, I, in so many ways, a disconnect in how I we talk about I tweeted that at Nate Silver yesterday. That's what I'm talking about. Right? Yeah. He was like, well, Tucker Carlson, we should not because First Amendment or some abstract. I'm like, Nate, I don't know what you're talking about because his racism is a direct impact on my body. All right, and my brothers' and sisters' bodies. It's not an abstract issue. And I guess if it is an abstract issue, then you're like, he has the right to say what he wants to say. But, like, no, the advertisers do not have to support it. And by advertising on the show, you are literally supporting him. Right. And, look, I started what I think was one of the first endeavors to go at someone's advertisers in this media era. You know, I helped to lead a protest against Hot 97 when they did this horrible tsunami song in the beginning of 2005. Uh, yeah. And it didn't start out as a thing where we were going after advertisers. We made direct appeals to Hot 97 and MS Communications like, look, this is wrong. Yeah. This is horrible that you're putting this on the air. They did not respond until the readers of my blog at that time, hiphopmusic.com, started finding advertisers and getting at them. At that point, you immediately saw things begin to shift to the point where there were firings. They donated a million dollars to Tsunami Charity. Back then, in 2005, I felt like, well, is going after advertisers the best way? Are there ramifications? Could that be used against us later? Those are all questions, 
But there is no alternative. That's the only way we right. have leverage in this media system because the only relationship these media companies care about is the relationship with their advertisers. As long as that's the game, we have to do what is necessary to protect ourselves, which is speak to you in the language you understand, your money. I mean, you've been out here spreading ideas that change the culture for many, many years in multiple mediums, blog, video, uh, you know, radio, etc., um, what what drives you? Why do you want to be spreading your ideas? Because I don't get the sense that Jay has this ego to where he's like, I'm the smartest one, so let me tell you what I think. But it, I feel like you want to spread good ideas for good reasons, for the from a community standpoint. So what what drives you? I mean, I think that's evolved over the years, but my path towards having a healthy sense of self, believing I had a place in the world, believing I could be a part of a community, contribute, comes from radio and it comes from hip-hop. When I got to come to WBAI as a teenager, this isolated, introverted kid, and all these amazing, brilliant people took me under their wing and taught me all their esoteric hippie knowledge, and then they gave me the opportunity to represent the hip-hop culture that I loved, and I got to be a participant, got taken under the wing of people like Bobito, who uh, yes. connected me with New York's hip-hop underground, and I got to be a part of this amazing creative community phenomenon, which in hip-hop since its earliest days has been about carving out space where invisible people could be seen and heard. That's what we were doing in the South Bronx, the most desolate, poorest county in the United States. We figured out how to plug these turntables into the lamppost and make a creative community space where we affirmed our own humanity. And that gave us a voice so loud that the whole world started paying attention to the oh, most yeah. invisible people. So that, that opportunity that hip hop especially gave me to uh, use your voice to carve out community is just something I've tried to give back and celebrate and uh, inculcate. And over the years, the voice that hip-hop gave me has let me talk about other issues like politics and social justice. And it's just a natural extension, trying to represent for people whose perspectives aren't heard as much and get us a little bit closer to each other's humanity. And we are both just old enough to remember a time when there was not hip-hop, or at least was right. not as, as a recorded, nationally known mm -hmm. phenomenon, right? And then we remember the rise of hip-hop, right? I remember the first time I heard Rapper's Delight and these sort of things, and just seeing it rise up. Now, watching it over these decades, are you disappointed with where hip-hop has gone? Are you still excited and thrilled by it? Is, is it not lesser than what you would have hoped for from what we started to see in the 80s and the 90s? That's so hard to answer because hip-hop is so many things it now, is. right? It is. I mean, I look back and feel like our generation of hip-hop did everything we could have ever hoped for it to do. And then we've passed it on to successive generations, and they're finding whatever nutrients they need to get from it. I might love some of it. I might feel some kind of way about other parts, just as I did about our own hip-hop. Sure. You know, it was, it's just like any community of flawed human beings. You know, we've never perfectly lived up to our hip-hop ideals. Um, and that's become clearer than ever as we found out these revelations about one of our founding fathers, Africa Bambada. Um, what do we do with that? I mean, you can't tell the story of the birth of hip-hop without talking about Herc, Flash, and mm -hmm. Bam, and yet 
to mention BAM now turns our stomach. Just the same way we cannot tell the next generation without talking about Russell, who now just mentioning the name turns the stomach. How do we tell the history when two of the four major names are like, we don't even want to see your face ever again? It's such a tough question. I mean, you know, I get to do a lot of uh, talks at colleges and universities, and it had always been a standard part of my talks as I lay the foundation of hip-hop's history, talking about Bam and how he created this outlet for gang members to come together. So having these revelations come out of his abuse of those self-same kids that he brought into this culture, that strikes right at the heart of hip-hop's origin myth, right? And it made me think a lot about how that approach to our history where we pinpoint these individuals as the pillars, as the architects, as the godfathers, is something we all do. We speak about history in shorthand because that's an easier way to pass on mm -hmm. the basics and get at the essence. Mm -hmm. You know, we always understand, of course, it came out of a community. It wasn't really entirely three people, but that's... Right. We assume everyone leaders. understands. Right. Yeah. But over time, as you get more and more invested in believing these are the pillars, they become indispensable to the culture itself. That gives you more and more incentive to look the other way about how they might be contradicting uh, the principles that they're supposed to be building this on. So it's really made me think more and more about how we can tell the history of hip-hop as a community history in which none of us is indispensable and it's only as valuable as how true each of us is as community members to so those principles we're supposed to be upholding. I mean, part of what we fell in love with was a music and a culture that had a real political spine, mm -hmm. right? Not just KRS-One and Public Enemy, but Poor Righteous Teachers and X-Clan and even Arrested Development. And even, you know, the native tongues, right, had a political as personal uh, sort of thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, the guys who rose up from the West Coast, I mean, you know, there was a political uh, message infused in this, even if you weren't, you know, talking specific political ideology. Mm -hmm. I feel like that spine has been completely lost. I mean, I think it depends where you look. Um, and it's always so hard to fully gauge because there's the aesthetic evolution and then there's the evolution of the ideas and perspectives and politics and mm -hmm. I think it can be easy for us as older heads to feel some kind of way about the aesthetic evolution and let that bleed into how we judge the ideas and the perspectives and the politics. Because I can listen to old Cool G rap records that yes. are every bit as retrograde yes. as anything that's out there now. But it's speaking to me musically in a way. But he was part of a community where he wasn't, but right. many other. And now I feel like most of the community is not talking about politics at all. I mean... I don't necessarily listen to every Lil A, Lil B, Lil C that's coming out. <laughs> but I think there's a balance. I mean, I think you've got Vic Mensa, you got Chance the Rapper, you got Kendrick, you got No Name, you got Jamila Woods. It, it depends on where you want to look. There's not this sort of monoculture that we had with previous generations of music and pop culture in general, where you could say out of these 10 artists, two of them are political or six of them are political. There's so many different subsets of hip-hop now that there's definitely stuff out there that frustrates me. There's stuff out there I find really inspiring. I think there's just there's, there's a much broader pool of expression out there. So it's harder for me to say hip-hop was that and now it's this. When I, when I did the story on Amigos and I really 
dug into aesthetically what this modern era is trying to do. And I started to understand the value of the ad lib, right? And sometimes mm -hmm. it, it's almost like they're talking to themselves in the verse. And 21 Savage does it really nicely, um, where it just seems like he's kind of... But it made me think about this modern generation, all the Lils, their verses will be very... Uh, they don't use all the space, right? right? And we come from a time... Eminem, Jay-Z, Nas, et cetera, where they used every bit of the space in the verse. Mm -hmm. And and I was almost like, at first I was like, naturally, as you alluded to, I'm like, they don't rhyme like we used to. And mm -hmm. I don't want to be the guy who's like, get off my lawn. You kids don't rhyme the way you used to. But I'm like, after a generation where it's 100% it's density in terms of words, you can't get more dense. You can't get more complex than that mm -hmm. generation. So, of course, the next generation had to say, well, where do we fit in? We have to go the other direction, right? Because there's no, there's no further complexity mm -hmm. from, from Eminem, Jay-Z, Nas, Doom, MF Doom, et cetera. Like, where, right? I mean, that, that's where I came down. So to understand why they went in a different direction where the, the verses are far less dense and far less complex in the traditional way. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's always important to me to try and step out of myself and hear it the way that the practitioners are hearing it and the way that their core audience and their generation is hearing it. So it's easy for me to, well, if Lil Yachty comes and spits the 16 over impeach the president, it's going to sound like garbage. Of course it will, because that's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to do something different from that. And I think going back a ways, going back a little bit to, let's say, Waka Flocka, if I step out of my hip-hop expectations that I grew up with and just think of him as like a punk rock artist who's channeling a certain type of energy, I can connect to what Waka Flocka is doing and actually think it's dope. And I, I can't do that with every current artist, but right. I think if you try to understand what they're trying to do and connect with it on that level, there can be a lot more there than what we give it credit for. I, one thing I noticed is that um, I did this sort of essay on a bigger sort of trying to look at hip hop, and in the in the '80s when they talked about drugs, most of the time it was that's something somebody else is doing, yeah. with the exception of, of of white lines. That's something somebody else is doing. It would be uh, a reference generally to there are many problems in the community. This is just one of them, right? When you get to the '90s, right, especially with the rise of Interscope and Death Row. It turned to, I am the drug dealer, right? Like, I do the stuff, I deal it, I, which was a massive shift. And I think, not uncoincidentally, mm -hmm. we moved from black urban youth uh, being the dominant consumer in the 80s to suburban white teens being the dominant consumer in the 90s. Um, what do you think about that? It's fascinating to watch how things have continued to shift, right? And it's, it's always... Uh frustrated me how that became the norm. I mean, tracing the reasons for that can be tricky. You know, I think it's my man Dan Charnas's theory that Snoop and Dre just happened to be what was popping when the formula for commercial radio stations just uh, happened. I mean, you, I mean, we could we could speculate <laughs> about something more conspiratorial as well. And I'm not uh, even saying conspiratorial, right. but I don't think it's an accident that that was chosen and that rose to the top when white boys started becoming the dominant consumer. I, yeah, I mean, 
I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? Like, I don't think it's entirely coincidental. I don't think it's all a big plot either. I think think what I'm saying is that circumstances converge in a certain way. Some of it is happenstance, but there's also certain tendencies and proclivities that grease the wheels for it to go that way. I think this the machinery for us to commercialize and merchandise hip-hop was coming together when Snoop and Dre were giving us this blueprint of theatrical gangster movies and there was going to be a particular type of audience for that for sure as you're saying so it built up tremendous momentum to the point that it was assumed that's what you had to be as a rapper you had to be representing a certain type of hyper masculine has done certain things in the street character um, and that Momentum kept up for it's got to be what 10 15 years until Kanye broke the spell and took us back to uh, you could just be a megalomaniacal <laughs> regular black man who's an egomaniac. <laughs> you don't have to come from this particular hyper masculine street pedigree. Um, and of course, he's also brought his share of baggage increasingly over the years as well. Oh, god, we could do a whole show on that. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first 
true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. Top five. Everybody's got their top five MCs. I'm curious to hear Jay Smooth's top five MCs. I'm always going to have Rakim number one. Yes. After yes. that, after that, it yes. gets tricky. Um, I mean, it's hard because what are the metrics? Because a lot of times, of course, timelessness will be one of in people's criteria. If you're going by timelessness, Run DMC probably doesn't make the cut because I don't think. Young people today can hear a Run DMC record and really get it the way that we got it. Okay, but, but to you can me, still play those records, certain, especially from the first two, three albums. Certain tracks you can rock like Peter Piper, Tougher Than Leather. Kids are gonna get that. Sucker MCs. But my, I mean, Sucker MCs to me is the holy grail. Yes. But I think people below a certain age, just because of how sounds have evolved, it's gonna sound dated to them in a way yes. different from. Tribe in a hundred years, I think kids can hear Tribe. I mean, Run DMC, love them, but it is the routine era at its zenith, as opposed to a Tribe Called Quest, which is much more modern, the modern feel of the music and the sound. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think Run DMC brought us into the modern era in terms of I think Rakim going brings to us that. into the modern Well, era. it's successive stages. Run DMC establishes this stripped-down, minimalistic drum sound. Like, yes. they... They make what was considered the old school sound go extinct. Yes. Along with LL Cool J, who should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hell yeah. They bring it to this stage. Then Rakim leads the way of bringing it to the next stage. Yes. I mean, Rock, Run DMC, no shots, love them, but it's all monosyllabic, end of the line, right? We rhyme on the four, the eight, right? This one, That's right. exactly Rakim the thing. Rakim showed rhymes. us. He showed us all the spaces in between yes. the beats. I thought Run DMC was the most advanced, like they had figured out the perfect mathematical equation for constructing a rock. Just listen while I'm dissing because you're pissing me off. Like, uh, how did you can't get any? They constructed the perfect rhyme. It's over. Then when Rakim came out, I didn't get it at first because I was so attached to that Run DMC mathematical equation. Okay. And when I heard Follow the Lead, I said, okay. This is cool, but it's kind of it's sloppy. Like he's not, it's not all symmetrical and in the perfect place. It took me a f- quite a few times listening to get. He's showing us all the spaces in between the beats. He's showing you how you can ride behind. My mother used to compare Rakim. My mother comes from the jazz world, and she compared Rakim's flow to a jazz drum solo where. Every four bars is a different riff rhythmically on the theme, and, and you never and, do the same thing twice. And he, he comes from a jazz right. family. He's doing that right. on purpose. Right. So to me, Rakim is like he was the one who could see the matrix and show us that you can dip and dodge yes. and be in between the beat in ways that we never saw before. I mean, the, the curveball with putting Rakim at the top, which I also do, is that that era was not about longevity, right? One or right. two great albums, you're the man, right? right? Very few people, a few, but very few people did three or four great albums. And when you get into the double O's, if you haven't done four albums, like, what are you doing? You're lazy. You know, like, you didn't four albums this year. Like, what are you doing? So when we talk about a Jay-Z or a Nas or even Big, as short as his life was, there's much more material to judge 
than Rakim, right? So when I talk to younger folks, they're like, how can you put up Rakim? He's really two, maybe three albums. Jay-Z is eight. Nas is four or five, right? right. I mean, and how do you, so, I mean, that gets into the metrics that you choose. Right. So how, do you, how do you weigh That's that out? That's what's so hard is you can't have the same arc if you're one of the people building the house as you do if you get to move into the house and work there. Right. That's Jay-Z and his generation are able to come in to a, a foundation where mm-hmm. they can pick up and run and keep fine-tuning a sound that's going to stay current. Like, you can go back through any. If you listen to Scott Joplin or W.C. Handy, you can appreciate it. It's not going to connect with you in the same way that 30 years of John Coltrane records do because they're in those early stages of giving us the blueprint and the building blocks and building the house. Is Tupac one of the great MCs of all time? No. <laughs> oh, my God, I love you. I love you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And it's like one of those things you can't say because that's people no, want to strangle you, but and that's no. no. That's no disrespect to Tupac. No. He's one of the most important voices and artists yes. we've ever had in hip-hop for reasons that transcend our usual standards for an MC. Yes. He's not the one who can spit an amazing 16 over impeach the president either. He wasn't supposed to be. He was giving us other things as a presence on this earth. See, that's it. I think if I could get you or others to forget all the stuff that happened in the courtrooms and in the streets and the things he said and the Black Panther bloodline, all that stuff. Let's just, great, but put that aside. Just deal with the music. Is he still top five all time, really? I don't think so. I mean, it's subjective. He's not in my top five. If someone has them in their top five, I can respect and understand that. I mean, I feel, feel like folks are either like, he's number one or he's number 20. There's no in-between. Right. And I'm like, number one? Even and by the way, two? Tupac is someone else whose full legacy needs to be revisited in terms of his history. You know, there's, there's a lot of figures that we still revere that... If certain revelations had come out 15 or 20 years later, it would be a very different conversation about that. I think Tupac is one of the people that needs to be on our docket for uh, asking the Me Too questions in his life story. Um, But in terms of his impact as an artist, no. I mean, bar for bar, Biggie kills him. I don't think that's even close. Kills. But there's a passion and an energy, but... Right, and there's a spark and a desire to say something and represent something. Like Biggie, I would love to hear on a musical level what else Biggie would have done. I don't feel like he was going to move on to deeper and deeper ideas in the way that Pac would. Like what what would Pac, what would be on Pac's mind? What would he be trying to communicate 5, 10, 15 years later is a question I wish we could have. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, would would he have come around to reckoning with his own Me Too issues as he got older? Yeah, I'd be curious to see where Pac developed as a political mind. All of that. Much more interested in seeing Biggie as a musical mind. Right. It might not even have been in the form of rapping for Tupac. It could have been all sorts of things. Absolutely. I mean, I think he's a great loss just as a presence in our culture. Absolutely. But as a rapper, no, I don't think he's even in my top 20. I, I, yeah, I totally agree. And it's one of those things that, like, if you say it, people are going to, like, a group of people. I mean, the Tupac fans will be furious. I get but, it. Like, I get it. So, you know, one of the biggest um, media hits you had was a video essay where you talk about how to tell people that they're racist. And I think it was a really important discussion because you decouple 
racist behavior or actions which can exist in a specific moment from the being of a racist, which is the entire totality. And you really help us see, like, if you say you are racist, then the person can fall back on, I've dated black women, my best friend Mm -hmm. is black, I love Spike Lee movies, I'm not, I love hip hop, I'm not racist. But that thing you said, even if you're an ally and you're like, but that thing you said, that was messed up. Or that thing, that specific, and when you can narrow it down to that, then we can get to something potentially productive. Right. And I would say up front, I'm not opposed to ever point point blank saying this person is racist. Like, (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes you got to do that. Right. I, I support every form of Donald Trump is racist. Any, any way you want to conjugate those words together. There's so because much he has a, evidence. Right. How do you he mean? has a lifelong pattern of functioning as an agent of racism. Yes. Regardless of what may or may not be in his heart. So I, I'm not saying don't ever say so-and-so is racist. But in the particular kind of combo you're describing where you want to have a good faith discussion with someone about a particular thing that they may have said or done, I think your best shot at having a productive conversation is focusing on the thing itself instead of it make instead of making it a what you are conversation that immediately brings up all these defense mechanisms. And it's gonna be a challenge regardless. You know, no matter how we broach the subject of racism, people will hear it as an indictment of them as a person. Yes. So that's those are things we need to unlearn as the recipient of the challenge, really, at the end of the day. We need to learn that racism is something we will all have natural tendencies towards. We're always going to have gaps in our knowledge, implicit biases. We're all a part of systems that might be benefiting us and harming others in ways we don't realize. There's always going to be stuff that we need to get checked on as good people who are trying to be good. So getting away from that idea that Anytime someone mentions racism, that's a conversation about me being a bad person, I think is the hurdle we all need to get over as listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, let's talk about the way race is lived for us. And you in particular, I mean, I do too. I am visually ambiguous to some people, right? I get a lot of people asking me if I'm mixed. And it's so funny how wide the spectrum is for possible ambiguity. Yes. Like, I think for black people, there's one type of radar. For other people, there could be a completely different type of radar, depending on where you are in the country, where you are in the world. People that... I wouldn't think there would be any doubt. Right. There's a lot of Americans that are like, hmm, I don't know, is he? I don't know. But, I, but I'm in the category where almost everyone is unsure. Well, it's true, right? Well, I mean, like, as soon as right. I knew who you were, right. my, my black radar works very well. I'm like, oh, he's a brother. But some black people, right, famously on MSNBC, sister with all good intentions, did not know. I don't know if she had all good put, intentions. Well, right, well, put, <laughs> well, put her foot in her mouth, right? By think, but I'm curious about the experience of race for you mm-hmm. as a person who is visually ambiguous and people are coming at you not sure, either not sure or making wrong assumptions. So how does it function for you? It functions in many different ways. Um, as a teenager, I think that was a part of my aversion to trying to connect with people is uh, knowing that there would always be this hitch in the conversation when I meet people for the first time. Uh, where usually we all do this in-group, out-group categorization as soon as we meet somebody without even thinking about it consciously, really. When someone meets me, 
as a kid growing up, I'd be aware they weren't sure what box to put me in. Mm -hmm. It might lead to the good old what are you conversation, Mm -hmm. or it might be a silent thing. But as a teenager still struggling to find my sense of self in general, it was so much of an extra pain having to even face that awkward moment to the point that I was that much more into just staying to myself and being over in the corner. As I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate that weird, awkward moment as an insight into how irrational and based on no science or logic our whole construct of race is, while still being a real presence in our lives that we have to deal with and navigate. So that, that's something that I've come to appreciate now as a way it gives me different forms of insight. You know, there's so many odd moments that I'll have when I used to have day jobs in the corporate world. People would find out that I'm actually black, white people, and I could see them running in their mind through every conversation we ever had, like, oh, did I ever say any? Mm. So you get you get to see certain things. I, I'm sort of a spy in the room sometimes and get to observe certain things, which comes with a fair amount of residual white privilege, I should say. You know, I definitely don't mean to make it sound like I have all these unique challenges, um, because there's there are many ways my day-to-day might be easier. My interactions with cops, my interactions with certain authority figures are going to be uh, colored, no pun intended, differently yeah. than they will. I learned that v- pretty clearly when I was working with my friend uh, Jason Reynolds, who's a great uh, writer now. We worked together for StoryCorps, this oral history project, where we'd be in this little Airstream trailer recording interviews just like this with people who would come in and... When white people would come into the booth to sit across from Jason, there was clearly a different energy than when they would sit across from me, based on him being clearly indisputably black. Sure. It wouldn't be a straight-up hostility. It might not be a straight-up fear. But there's always something different that someone who is that someone who clearly reads as black. They're going to go through the world experiencing things that I don't in a way that in many in many forms is going to be easier for me. So that's one of the things I try to keep in mind is I need to use that to challenge this status quo and speak on behalf of people because I think one of the reasons my How to Tell Someone to Sound Racist video got as many views as it did is because my ambiguity makes some people see me as a safer voice to listen to and connect with. Mm-hmm. So. I want to make sure to be cognizant of that and try to use it to counteract the status quo instead of being complacent about do it. You, do you need slash want people to know you're black? Or you, like, I know some folks who are, who are very light-skinned, I almost sense a sort of Napoleonic complex of, like, they want to be the loudest. <laughs> they want to be the, you know, they want to say the yeah. N-word and stand on, they make sure everybody knows, I'm black, I'm black. I'm like, okay, I wasn't asking, but, you know, like, does it, does it matter to you or does it not, like, this is my life and you do you and I'm going to do me? It matters. I mean, I'm proud to be black. Um, and, and it wasn't I as certainly... if you weren't proud. Oh, of course, yeah. of course. But I think... My relationship with that has evolved over the years as well. You know, when I was in high school, when I was growing up, I definitely wanted to have it on my chest. I would have a backpack with a hundred different buttons on it. I couldn't wait for some kind of debate to come up. Uh, you know, I would definitely look for reasons to put it right. I'd get damn right I'm black. Right. Over the years, my sense of self gets stronger. You know, I'm blessed to have a beautiful relationship with the black community in many different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and not have an ongoing need to feel like I need to prove myself uh, to the point where I can sense that someone is making a certain judgment and I can remember that's about them. That's, that's something that's happening outside of my sense of self and who I see myself to be, and I don't need to be stressing it that much. But I, I do think that, I think you can probably see that with the number of uh, light-skinned, visually ambiguous people that uh, become politically active or vocal on yep. issues. I think it can be totally sincere, and I think there can also be a battery in your back to make sure you're letting people know where you stand at all times. I think that's something that I've had in me at times, definitely when I was younger. Just to go back to the Chris Hayes moment for a second, were you suggesting, do you think that the sister had some sort of bad or negative or ill intention in suggesting that you were white? Uh, Well, I don't don't mean to demonize her too much, but what I mean is... uh, I think she was locked into playing the pundit game of trying to put points on the board Mm -hmm. in this segment. And she guessed wrong about my identity, which is fine. That happens all the time. But that next step of, ah, this is a card I can play to get a little dunk on him. Mm -hmm. That to me. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tinderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the black one here, not you. So I'm the superior. I, I don't know. I, if this she, conversation. I'm not saying she necessarily thought that deep into it, but, oh, I could get him on this. He's white and sounds like he's talking black. I can get a little mm-hmm. viral moment here of Duncan on him, mm-hmm. or I could have the highlight of the segment. And I think uh, that little leap is what made it into... A somewhat malicious thing. Maybe not a conscious intent to be malicious, but you're doing something a little shady with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I had an interesting moment on Twitter this week. Um, I was thinking about how horrible Trump is just as a president. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if a black or f- black person or a woman were that bad, there would be public and private discussions about we should never have a black or female president ever again. But 
Trump and also the poor performance of George W. Bush um, does not inspire any notion of like, maybe we should not have white male presidents for me. And I was like, I just want to say this just to screw with people. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, Trump and George W. Bush, the last two white presidents were so bad, perhaps we should not have white male presidents for a while. And people freaked out. And I saw like, just even the hypothetical suggestion of blocking white people from something was so enraging. It was it was amazing. There, yeah, there's a, a lack of sarcasm detection. <laughs> <laughs> People's privilege is so fragile <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> that uh, sarcasm can make them feel like the whole house of cards is going to come falling down. Yes. I mean, there are so many people in the 2016 run-up who talked without being asked about we will not – We basically saying we are going to be a minority-majority country soon, and this is our last chance to stop it. Like, Hillary's going to let all of Mexico in, and white people will be the minority, and we're going to have taco trucks everywhere, and we will be defeated. Yeah, when? (laughs) My block doesn't have a taco truck. You promised this. That's the biggest promise that wasn't kept. They want the wall. I want my taco trucks. (laughs) I want a taco truck at every corner. But, I mean— But it's so silly because the idea that a numerical majority of non-white people— is suddenly going to bring a new era of white slavery that <laughs> lacks the most basic understanding of how this whole socio-political system works. What percentage of the population were white South Africans? Right, right. There's a lot more to the game than that. I mean, right, if they, if they control most of the wealth, then they're still in control, even if they're a minority of the population. And. I hope that's not the path that we're on of trying to consolidate their power that way. That's why these are scary times, because this is they can see progress moving in a certain direction. The people who have become Trump's base and I think they're going to become increasingly desperate and there's going to be people willing to feed into that desperation for their own ends, whether it's power or just riches or just feeding this desperate, gaping maw of insecurity that someone like Donald Trump has. There's going to be this symbiotic relationship between these demagogues and this desperate racist base that I I think no matter what happens with Donald Trump, the individual, that's going to be a long-term problem we've got to figure out. I think it was Ta-Nehisi who talked about whiteness is implicitly wrapped up with a sense of superiority. And there really isn't a culture that sits behind that. There is an amazing Italian-American culture, Irish-American culture, etc. But a white culture, not really akin to what we have in terms of black culture. And when we talk about what blackness means, we can talk about soul, we can talk about joy, we can talk about pain and trauma. But whiteness seems to redound almost entirely to a sense of superiority. It's a strange thing. That kid at Columbia University who was ranting to the other kids about how proud he is of white culture. Because of the, the supposed success of Europe. Yeah, it's always so strange to me. How are you connecting all of these? The, the only thing that connects this umbrella of whiteness is a history of oppression and, and colonialism. There's no, like, you're not referring to a culture. Right. Well, right, I mean, right. When they go to Europe, they're talking about the technological and cultural advances that Europe has made. Fine. They somehow skip over the moral atrocities 
the historic moral and, trustees I mean, that have... That's a, an incomplete measure of the scientific and technological advancement as well, of course. Also. But, that, yeah, that whole way of thinking is, is so strange to me. But that's... There's just... There's a, a base level of poisonous self-esteem that's been placed in the minds of white people going back generations and generations. This is what Bob Dylan talked about in um, Only a Pawn in Their Game, amazing track about Medgar Evers' killer, how these white politicians keep telling people, well, you might be poor and exploited too, but at the, at the end of the day, you're still white. So you're still a step above these other people. And you see that with something like uh, Ted Cruz going after Beto for expressing solidarity with black people for mistreatment from the police in a case that's open and shut case. There's no possible way to dispute that this was a case of racist police brutality. Ted Cruz doesn't even try to make an argument on that. He puts up the video of Beto siding with black people, and the message is crystal clear. Like, that guy's on their team. I'm here to be on your team. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, uh, people want to know that you're on team white. Yeah. And, and there's too many politicians with silver tongues who are more than happy to play that up. What's the biggest challenge facing black America? I'm, I'm always uh, hesitant. Or, or some of them. <laughs> to pick out a single thing. Um, biggest challenge facing black America. How do you pick one thing out? I mean. True, I know. There's so many measures in terms of uh, where we're at in terms of a wealth gap as opposed to an income gap. Mm -hmm. um, the difference is so stark, and it comes from such a wide variety of factors. There's so many things that are intertwined, health care, prison industrial complex, housing. I mean, there's, just, there's so many systemic issues that all tie together. I don't. I, I don't know if you can pick out a biggest problem. I think we can try to look for where we have the most leverage to move the dial on particular things. It seems like right now maybe that's with the criminal justice system. I mean, you talk about the criminal justice system and mass incarceration, and, and, and that within the rubric of the war on drugs, I feel like, really criminalizes us takes us out of the uh, out of above ground society so often, you know, breaks down families, criminalizes entire areas where innocent people are still treated as if they are guilty. Um, there's it, it, its tentacles stretch so far. And if we can truly retract that, um, that will be a massive victory for us in the future of some sort of progress. Yeah. And I think there there has to be a uh, looking back on the damage that was done as we keep moving forward. You know, there's a lot of movement towards opening the floodgates of marijuana big business right now, which uh, lots of people from certain sectors of the population stand to benefit from. There's other sectors of the population that have been greatly harmed by the system we're about to get rid of. And I I don't think we just jump right into this new world and forget all the damage that was done. There has to be some kind of recompense in how we shift this system forward. And it's, it's so frustrating to me to see how 
differently we look at the issue of drugs depending on who the victims are, who's being hurt. I mean, mm -hmm. it's terrifying to look at how the opioid epidemic is playing out, mm -hmm. but it's impossible not to notice that when it's predominantly white people being affected, so we don't use the word drugs anymore. So we come up with empathy. another word. Yes. Well, the, one of the moments that stands out for me um, from the new Jim Crow, which was transformational for me, was when she talks about the prosecutor in Indiana who talked about he arrested, you know, a good, or arrested, they arrested mm -hmm. a good old boy who's dealing meth with a shotgun. And the prosecutor says to the other one, well, it's not like he's a drug-toting gun, uh, drug, a gun-toting drug dealer. And Michelle Alexander's like, he is literally a gun-toting drug dealer, but mm -hmm. somehow he's different because he's in overalls and a sh wearing a sh shotgun and meth in Indiana instead of a Glock and a... That, what is the real difference there? And we know what the real difference there is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I guess we're, the legalization is coming to New York City. It's going to be fascinating to see how this keeps evolving. But I hope... Uh, I hope something can be channeled into righting the wrong. It's fascinating where people's sense of justice can be in terms of where their money goes. I'm really thinking about that a lot this week because of all the money that MAGA people are volunteering to put into a GoFundMe to build this wall. It fascinates me because so many of these same people, if you ask them to uh, help poor people find housing, help people with their addiction, any other form of social services, they'll say, what, my hard-earned money? Right. That's theft. Right. That's robbery. Right. But this other completely meaningless, symbolic gesture of hate and fear, we will voluntarily dump our money into. So I, there, there needs to be some kind of shift of how our money and compassion connect in this country. Thanks to Jay Smooth for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Keisha Cole and Tyrese Hester. Our photographer is Chuck Marcus. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment now and produced by Brick TV and a part of the Brick Radio family. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. 
My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.